After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and had eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the, the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, church, my question to you this morning is this. What are you investing in? What are you investing in? We only have so many dollars to allocate to the right places. We only have so many hours in the day to uh, give focused attention to the people that we love. We have limited and precious resources. What are we spending them on? I praise the Lord that about 16 years ago, someone invested in me. Someone invited me to church. Someone shared the gospel with me. Someone invited me into their life and taught me how to be a Christian. Someone showed me love and patience and encouraged me in the faith. Someone, many, many, many someones invested in me. And what's unique about the word investment or doing an investment means that there's typically some kind of return for the one who makes it. I pray through my life and ministry today that there are those who've invested in me seeing some semblance of fruit because they took the time to make a worthwhile investment in little old me. We haven't seen him in several weeks now, but you'll remember a character from the book of Acts named Barnabas. Barnabas. He was known as the son of encouragement. He loved people. People loved him. He was a member of the church of Jerusalem who sold a great deal of property and gave the funds to the apostles to meet the needs of the church. 
His generosity was not soon forgotten. And it was remembered not just because people kept talking about it and gave him this cool nickname, but also because he went on to teach others how to live this way. He was generous, he was an encourager, and he taught others how to be generous and to encourage others. Barnabas invested in one new believer, a Pharisee by the name of Saul. Barnabas stuck out his neck for Saul, made sure that he would be accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem. He was a constant advocate, a discipler, an encourager. Much of what we're reading in these later chapters of the book of Acts are the fruit of Barnabas being an active encourager and discipler in the body of Christ. His generosity to this new feisty believer named Saul would go on to be an encouragement across the nations. Beloved, what we invest in today will mean everything to our church a hundred years from now. We are making long-term investments. Our passage this morning points us to Paul's ministry of encouragement, which he doubtless learned from our friend Barnabas. He was a persecutor of Christians and now been converted as the light blinded him on the road to Damascus and had now been converted to the ministry of encouragement rather than a persecutor of Christians. Investments, of course, don't always show fruit quickly. And this passage is good because it shows us an example of immediate fruit of investment. The church at Ephesus was comforted because they came and invested their time. The church in Troas was comforted because they came and invested their time. All of Paul's companions that walked alongside him through town after town after town were comforted by Paul's encouragement and discipleship. When we invest in the priorities of God's kingdom, the church is encouraged and built up. Do you want to encourage the people around you? Do you want to encourage the people in this church? Do you want to build up the church and the church at large? Do you want to build up the church in Rutherford County? Do you want to build up the church in the United States and across the nations? This text gives us three things we need to invest in in order for the church to bear fruit and be of good comfort and joy. Those investments are the investment of being present, the investment of Sunday worship, and the investment of first priorities. First, the investment of being present. Verse 1 picks up right where chapter 19 left off. I feel silly saying that every single week, but that's how books work, <laughs> right? The next sentence follows the previous sentence. That's, that's good preaching right there. Anyways, <laughs> there was an uproar in the town of Ephesus. They all were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, because this guy named Demetrius, who was a, a silversmith of sorts, uh, saw that his business was being threatened because people weren't buying idols and the craftsmen weren't making as many idols. Uh, and so they thought they were in great danger of losing all their wealth or that the temple of Artemis could even be destroyed. So he basically got this crowd together. They caused a great deal of confusion, stormed the theater and said, we're having an assembly right now, today. Get the town clerk out here. We're going to get something done. And all of this was empty noise meant to scare the Christians, particularly Paul. 
This was a scare tactic that caused a scene, but eventually came to an end when they were silenced by the town uh, clerk, not what they thought was going to happen. Uh, Paul talks of his time in Ephesus uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 uh, of this time in Asia being met with much difficulty, and they were burdened and depressed because of all these events that took place. It was a difficult time. Uh, and it kept him from going back to Corinth as soon as he wanted. His anxiety and fears were not for his own life, of course, but for all those new disciples who had come to faith after ministering them to them for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And to see his ministry to Asia come to a close in such a bitter way was just sad. He wanted to encourage the believers in Asia. He needed encouragement. They needed encouragement after this awful bout of confusion. So that's what he did. Verse 1 says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. He couldn't leave the disciples and not have some damage control, right? Not do some encouraging uh, after this faith-shaking event. It was dangerous for Paul to even make contact with these believers or go into Ephesus, but he was going to find a way to send them to him to to get their attention so that he could encourage them before he moved on. He didn't want to just write them a letter. He did write them a letter, right? But that wasn't enough. He wanted to see them face-to-face to pray with them with his hands on their backs. He wanted to look them in the eye and to give encouragement to their souls. This was an investment of being present. And that's particularly unique about this example and should be unique about many of the circumstances that we try to encourage one another in is that it came in the midst of crisis, or we could say even after a crisis. One of the best investments we can give to the church is to be there during the hard times, right? When the town is acting the fool and you don't know if Jesus really is Lord anymore. We need to be encouraged. We need somebody to come alongside us and tell us the truth. You know, most church cultures in the South are pretty happy to host potlucks, do elaborate dinners and fundraisers, host the Saturday morning men's breakfast and all the rest of the festivities as long as things are going well. But the moment things get hard or a little bit messy in the body of Christ, We've been discipled by the Bible Belt way to retreat. Things are not going so great. I'm going to go ahead and check out. Paul does the opposite here. He digs deeper and to be an encourager. We ought to show up for the church and for one another when the times are hard. Replanting was seriously difficult. Everybody left. Not everybody. Y'all are here, obviously. But man, it felt like it. Those days where two or three people would call me at once and say, I'm gone. That was defeating. People came along and encouraged me during the hardest times, and we're still here today to tell the story. When was the last time you were in a crisis? Who was there for you? Did you let people in? If you did let people in, what did it mean for you just to have that person physically present while you were suffering? And, you know, I'm not just talking about visiting people in the hospital. That's a good thing to do, right, when we're sick, to visit each other and care for each other and bring meals. Y'all brought us more food than I could possibly eat when Tilly was born. And I'm thankful for that. 
But what about when we're just at a crossroads? Should I take this job or that job? Should I move or stay where I'm at? What about when we've committed some awful sin and we're just riddled with shame and guilt? What about when life is just really overwhelming and we're stressed out and we have too much on our plates? What about when we're having all these little babies? What about when we're caring for our elderly parents and it's becoming a real burden? What about when our car breaks down on the side of the road? There are different levels of crisis that can take place in our lives, but regardless of the level of the crisis, all of them are wonderful opportunities for the church to spring into action and to encourage each other to be physically present when we are having a difficult time. And by the way, encouragement isn't saying the right things and then making somebody feel better. That's not necessarily encouragement. Sometimes it's literally just being in the same room as the person who is suffering. In that sense, that is an investment that every single member of this church can make, regardless of your spiritual maturity or your uh, theological precision. You can be in the same room with someone who's having a hard time, right? We're kind of doing that right now, aren't we? Maybe you even have individuals that are coming to your mind as I'm preaching this, of somebody you need to make a phone call to or take out to coffee or have over for dinner. What will you do to make your life more available for them this week or this month? These are investments. We only have so many hours to give, right? I think based on verse 2, we are giving, given an example of being strategic in who we give our presence to. Paul was strategic. He departed from Macedonia, and then after encouraging all the disciples in those regions, right, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, uh, those, those places, he went down to Achaia, which is where Corinth was. Uh, that's probably what he means by Greece there. Um, and Macedonia was back across the water from Asia, right? And it wasn't enough to send a letter. He went back across the water to encourage them, right? This was a several-day journey, and going to all these places was exhausting, a huge investment of time to be physically present and see them face-to-face, right? This, this was a huge sacrifice. He wanted to see them face-to-face. In, in fact, in the letters that he does write, to all these churches. Many of them, he says, how I long to see you. I miss you. I can't wait to get back to you. Right? Even if it's a painful visit, as he said to the church in Corinth. We are incredibly blessed with technology in our age. We can use technology for the encouragement of the church, but there will never be a piece of technology that will be able to replace the precious fellowship of time spent together in the same room. If 100 years from now, the rest of the world is living in some kind of weird, futuristic pod with these things implanted into our brains, and that's how we talk to each other and work in the world, it's going to be real sad. You know what? The church is going to be operating on a whole different level because we need to see each other. We're commanded to see each other by Scripture. Paul was intentional in this investment of personal presence. Are you intentional and strategic? the investment of personal presence. Who do you spend time with? Do you spend time with whoever shows up in your life that day? Or do you intentionally reach out to people that you believe you can invest your presence in? 
Do you make great sacrifices to be in the same room with the people who need it most? Even if you have to cross the waters to be there. And I have to say, even though this is something all of us can work on, myself included, my heart is full to see so many of you doing this well. I hear reports all the time of people going to one another's homes, having coffee with each other, talking about church, talking about the sermon, talking about small groups, just being present in each other's lives. And I didn't even know it was happening. And when I hear stories and reports like that, I think, praise the Lord. He's doing a work here among you guys. That's awesome. That's, that's, that does my heart really good. And the impact of what might feel so simple and casual today, just talking to someone in church or being physically present with them, will actually cause fruit to produce that will outlive us. It's an impact that is generational, that will go on ahead of us for many, many years. We need one another. We need to be in the same room. We have to teach one another how to do this, too. You know, some of us are more introverted than others, <clears throat> right? Uh, some of us are more extroverted and just love being around people, and this ain't no problem. Uh, but verses 4 through 6 show us that just as Barnabas taught Paul how to do this, Paul was now teaching others. There are six names mentioned in verses 4 through 6. Um, and these are all Paul's companions that he had hand-selected to join him in the missionary journey. He didn't just choose them because you know, they were like really good at stuff. They had these skills and talents that they could bring to the table. They probably did have some things that they brought to the table, but he chose them because he wanted to disciple them on the job. This is why he chose Timothy. He hand-selected him. This is what Barnabas did for Paul. Paul uh, Barnabas went all the way down to Tarsus, where Paul was staying, to get him and to uh, bring him on the journey with him. Right, And so now Paul is doing that, not just with Timothy, but with all these other dudes. Right? Um, and so he learned the discipline of encouraging the saints, and the church would continue to grow because of investments like these. So we ought to take this a step further, not just taking somebody out to coffee to encourage them, but intentionally inviting someone into our lives so they can watch us live as Christians and to be discipled by just being near us. You know? I mean, what, what, a, what a blessing to... Have someone like that who's willing to let you in and just watch them. Who are you discipling? Who is discipling you? This is a question that I continue to ask as a pastor of all of our church members. And you may feel inadequate to be a part of the discipleship ministry of the church. But beloved, this is a ministry for every single member to be involved in. You ever feel lost or you're not sure where to plug in? One of the things you need to always come back to is who can I disciple or who can disciple me? Maybe it's a short-term thing to grow in a certain area or maybe it's just making a new friend in the body of Christ, a new companion to live life with. What's so refreshing about Paul's model here is that these weren't just his little projects, right? That he was you know, trying to uh, work on like a car to get it running. These were his friends, these were his companions. He welcomed them by his side to do ministry with him. When we disciple each other, we're not building some hierarchy of who's more spiritually uh, 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 adept or um, 
qualified in this area or whatever and, and, and trying to sort of nitpick who's better than another. That, that's not what discipleship is about, but it's about coming alongside one another, encouraging one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, working together for the Great Commission. This is what the local church is all about, and when we invest in these things seriously, something beautiful happens, and I see that something beautiful happening in our little church today. It's glorious. Get after it. Keep discipling one another. Even if it feels like it's not bearing any fruit now, give it time. This is the Lord's work. We're encouraged by being in the same room and encouraging each other intentionally and strategically. It should be no surprise to us then that God ordained a weekly gathering just for us to do that every single week, to come together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, and encourage each other. It's called Sundays. Invested in Sunday worship. Number two, invested in Sunday worship. Well, Luke records for us in verse 7 a brief stay in the city of Troas. This was a harbor city on the west coast of Asia, right? So they were probably leaving from Troas to get to and from uh, Macedonia. And there's no letter to the church in Troas. Don't know a lot about Troas, uh, but clearly disciples were made there. There was a church there. There were believers in Troas. And so they decided to stay there for a full seven days, a full week, to encourage these believers and minister to them on their slow journey back to Jerusalem. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. This is the first explicit reference uh, we have in the New Testament to a corporate gathering on the first day of the week. The traditional Sabbath of Israel would have been the last day of the week, what we might consider Saturday. The church, the people of the way, did not continue meeting on the seventh day as the Jews did, but began meeting on the first day of the week, the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. The phrase, the Lord's Day, seems to assume this role of what the Sabbath sort of meant and felt like in the New Testament church. Paul refers to this day of a gathering in 1 Corinthians 16. John calls it the Lord's Day as well in Revelation 1. And we could get into a lot of nuts and bolts about the Sabbath versus the Lord's Day and sort of what all that means. Um, we can talk about that more another time. But I think what we need to see here is that the Lord initiated a biblical pattern of coming together on the first day of the week and everybody knew about it. This is what the Christians did since the very beginning of the church. And when we gather together on Sundays, we are partic participating in something that is way older than us and way bigger than us. We are participating in something that is older than the Southern Baptist Convention, older than the Reformation, older than the Catholic Church, older than all the good traditions that were formed throughout the ages of church history. We did not make this one up. We did not come together on Sundays to sing and pray and hear God's word because we thought it seemed like a good idea. We joined the chorus of all those who've been worshiping on the first day of the week since the days of Paul and the apostles. Even the days of the angels who said to Mary at the empty tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
we gather together with all the saints who've gone before us because Jesus is alive. And this first day of the week is a holy commemoration throughout eternity until he returns on the last day of judgment. Jesus is alive. That's why we gather. And notice what they were doing on this first day of the week. They had gathered together in person in someone's home to break bread and to hear a sermon from Paul. The entire church had assembled in a place that could hold them, probably pretty tight, right, in the upper room, a three-story home. Um, and they were breaking bread. That, that, I mean, we talked about this in Acts 2. Maybe this was the Lord's Supper. Maybe this was sharing a meal. Maybe this was both different interpretations there. Uh, whatever was happening, we know they had gathered together to encourage one another in the gospel in sincere and genuine, devoted fellowship. This was a pre-planned, habitual gathering that they were doing each week. Paul was giving the sermon this week, but you know they probably had elders who were regularly instructing and teaching the church on this first day of the week. And if they had not got elders yet, what do you think Paul and his team were doing? Y'all got to get some elders. You need to be taught. You need to be instructed. He had a lot to teach them, by the way. Evidently, all the way through midnight and through daybreak, Paul preached. And when I say Paul preached, Paul preached, right? They broke bread. They heard a word of truth. It's also worth noting that this was a multi-generational assembly. There was a young man named Eutychus who we're going to meet in just a moment. The text calls him a youth. I don't know what that means, a teenager, a young person. Um, he was there. There were old people. There were young people. They broke bread together with smiles on their faces in the same room under the dim flames of the lamps and the glow of the moon coming in through the windows. They praised the Lord together, and they took courage from the words of Paul. Beloved, the gathering of the church is essential to your joy in Christ. The gathering of the church is essential to your joy in Christ. I would urge you to make this one of the biggest priorities of your whole life. The local church should be operating as sort of this central hub for each family in Christ. It is the place that takes precedence. The people that we choose over hobbies, over sleeping in, over travel ball, or even our work and our careers. There are times when you might not be able to make it to church on Sunday. Those times occur, and they are legitimate. If you're sick, you have my blessing. Don't come to church, right? If you have some family emergency, there, there are times when you get a free pass, okay? Those exist. But... They should be unordinary. They should be strange and weird. When you're not here, people should notice, and it shouldn't be normal for you to miss a lot of church. And I don't say that because I'm some legalistic, power-hungry preacher looking for an audience. There's plenty of that. I say that because I want you to be happy in Jesus, and I believe the Bible gives a picture a pattern of people who are happy in Jesus coming to church, assembling together. 
If you give yourself to the life and ministry of this church, I promise you your joy will only increase. I've never met a single person who went to church sporadically or flippantly and also managed to maintain a vibrant, happy, joyful, satisfying walk with Christ. It just doesn't make sense. This is or should be one of the biggest encouragements of your life. When people ask you what you're encouraged by, one of the most immediate thoughts that come to your brain should be my church. Our church ought to be one of the most encouraging parts of your life, if not the most encouraging part of your life. The church isn't encouraging, of course, because we put on an entertaining performance each week and we, you know, um, put on a good show that sort of makes you happy. But rather, it's an encouragement because it is the living building ordained by God for you to find life and meaning and deep abiding fellowship with other believers. God has given us this gift to assemble together week after week, century after century, until the final day of the Lord when all the church will be gathered in and we will see Jesus on his throne and every tear will be wiped away and our encouragement will know no end. We stir one another up to love and good works while that day is drawing near. Plus, hear me out, if you skip church, who knows what you might miss? You might miss the world's longest sermon. You might miss a teenager falling out of a window. You might miss God raising somebody from the dead. The end of verse 7 tells us Paul, with <laughs> this long-winded, one-off sermon in Troas, continued to prolong his speech until midnight. He prolonged his speech until midnight. And this is one of those weird Bible things like midnight actually means 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know. That means midnight. <laughs> that means the dark hours that we're not supposed to see. And he continued to go all the way through daybreak. I love y'all. I don't think I've seen any of you at midnight, unless it was Christmas Eve at the Matheny's house. But that's, that's a time when we sleep. This isn't some weird cultural thing. Verse 9 says, because people were getting sleepy, and Eutychus was one of them, he decided to migrate in the dark, stuffy room full of hot lamps to the window while Paul talked still longer. The room was full of people. This was a good move. You know, the young guy is trying to stay awake, get some fresh air by the window. Imagine the 30-year-olds who were up all night with toddlers. You know what I'm saying? Um, there were sleepy people. There were sleepy people. Before we get to the inevitable fate of this poor guy, let's acknowledge the good here. He was trying to stay awake to hear good preaching. Good preaching worth staying up for. And what is good preaching? That which is from the Bible, through the Spirit, exalting Jesus, and is directed to the people of God. Paul was not the most eloquent speaker. That's made clear through the biblical uh, records. But he fed them the food that the sheep needed 
that their hungry souls had been longing for. And they were feasting on every word, even till their eyes started to get heavy, and some of them were overcome by sleep. They were not going to go home and get in their beds. They'd rather fall asleep trying to listen to a good sermon than just leave. Many people have fallen asleep in church. Amen? Amen? Y'all here? None of y'all sleeping now? I would say, to be completely honest, that there are dozens of Sundays throughout the year in which I see people nodding their heads while I preach. I don't take it personally. I don't take this as a critique to my preaching style or even as a warning to your spiritual well-being. To be honest, I don't think about it much at all. What bothers me far more is when I don't see my people here at all. Or when people aren't even aware that we're preaching through the book of Acts. Or when they don't come to church because they know I won't be there that Sunday. They don't want to hear the other guy preach. These are all signs that there could be a far worse problem going on besides getting sleepy in church. These are signs of a spiritual sleep. Perhaps you come to church fully alert, eight hours of sleep behind you. You don't yawn. You don't check your watch even once. But you also don't engage with the text. You didn't bring your Bible with you. You uh, were not excited or eager to hear the preaching of the Word. You haven't been praying for the word to fall on fresh and fertile soil each Sunday and Saturday night as a family. You didn't think about the sermon much afterward, the following Monday, or how to continue applying it, how to think through your life circumstances. I would much rather you come to church eager to hear good preaching with a sleepy head than to be here eyes wide open with a sleepy soul. This goes for young people, too. It's my kids' application for the day. We got kids brimming on these front pews right now. You want some exhortation from a pastor? Here it is. If you're under the, eight, you're under the age of 18 years old, one of the best things you can start doing is bringing your Bible to church and a notebook and try to take notes of all the pastor's points, those slides where I have the big letters, right? Those are my points. Write them down. And anything that follows that you, 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 you jive with, you know, that you want to go back and think about later, write it down. Follow the application. Make a habit of this now. It will serve you well the rest of your life. And then look over the notes again in the afternoon or look them over on Monday and see if there's anything that you hadn't thought about or something you need to pray for. If you're over the years of 18 years old, I would urge you not to get lazy with church. The tale is old as time. You get grown up, you go to college, start driving yourself around town, you become Mr. and Mrs. Independent. You also feel the pull of your flesh to treat church as an optional thing. Something you do if you have time for. Meanwhile, Eutychus is over here pinching himself about to fall out of a window just to be in church. He's not doing this because he doesn't want to get caught sleeping. He's doing this 
because he is desperate to hear the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? We need the words of the book. Bring the book. Read the book. Give us the book. Good preaching is worth staying up for. And I've got good news for you this morning. I'm only going to preach to you for about 10 more minutes. Can you make it 10 more minutes? Can we do this? Can you track with me intentionally focused, reined in for 10 more minutes? Can you stay up for some good preaching? I'm going to try to give you good preaching. The end of verse 9 says that this young man fell down from the third story of the upper room and was taken up dead. Eutychus fell out the window. You know what the name Eutychus means? This is just too good. It means lucky. Come on. The Lord has a sense of humor, right? His name was Lucky. That's what Eutychus means. Whether that was a nickname or his actual name. He would live up to his name. Verse 10 says that Paul himself stopped preaching and went outside the home and bent over Eutychus, took him up in his arms, and told everyone not to be alarmed because his life was in him. And some interpreters believe Eutychus was completely killed from this awful fall, was taken up dead, literally dead, dead. Uh, others believe this was just a really nasty fall, and he appeared to be dead at first sight, but survived. His life was in him. And the text does say that he was taken up dead, so you, know, you can see kind of both sides. I tend to think he actually died. He was taken up dead. Regardless of which way you lean, just picture Paul dropping his sermon to run outside and to meet the boy on the ground. The text reads like he made it there before anyone else. He was the one preaching, right? He, he, he took the youth away or took him back up to the upper room alive, and they were not a little comforted. This was a Sunday in Troas that no one would soon forget. The lifeless body of this young man laying in Paul's arms as he marched up three flights of stairs back to the upper room was a picture of saving grace. God spared his life, and this was an encouragement to the entire congregation. There was an older man who was heavily involved in associational life here in Rutherford County, who died just a few years ago. His name was Roger Everts. The association building, which they need a new roof right now, if anybody of you want to make a roof donation, um, they decided to convert this old hotel building, the main conference room area, into a chapel. And someone donated a small steeple to put on top of this chapel over on North Washington Street. And Roger was happy to mount the steeple on this newly restored facility. Roger fell off the roof while installing this steeple, and he died. He did not come back from the dead. But here's the glorious truth that comforts the church when Christians die and are not as fortunate as Eutychus. The Lord can do more than raise physical bodies from the dead. He can raise souls that were once dead in trespasses and sins. 
The picture we see of Eutychus falling to the ground and being carried back up to the gathering of the saints is a scene that points us to an even greater salvation. God is raising sleepers from their spiritual graves every single day. See, we've done something far worse than fall asleep in church. That seems to be the most public, worst sin, right? We've done something far worse. We've sinned against a holy God. And God's righteous requirement for our transgression against his holy law is eternal judgment and death. We deserve the eternal wrath of God for our sin. But God has provided a substitute, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died our death, buried on our behalf, and rose from the dead in glorious victory. And we gather every single day on the first day of the week to commemorate that resurrection and then remind ourselves that we too have been given a resurrection like his own. We've been raised from the dead. We were taken up dead by sin, but God himself, by grace and by grace alone, carried us up in his arms to the gathering of the saints and flung open the doors to the church that we could be welcomed into the family of God, fully alive with life in us. This is what the gospel has achieved. Grace. Grace upon grace for sinners. Have you believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? You can fall asleep in church a million more times if you like, but don't miss this one precious truth. You must believe in Jesus. He came to save sinners from eternal death. The Father's wrath was completely satisfied in Jesus. And without Jesus, you are without hope. You must believe in the gospel while it is still called today. And you will be raised from the dead. Each of us should walk away from every Sunday service remembering that God has raised us up from the dead. And in this most glorious reminder, we are too not a little comforted. We invest time with one another. We invest time in the Sunday morning gathering. We invest time in kingdom-focused priority. Kingdom-focused priority. The, the passage ends with more itinerary planning, right? They go from this place to that place to this place to that place, and they're just trying to get back to Jerusalem. They went to Asos, but Paul wanted to go by land, and then they went to Mytilene, and they went to Chios, and they went to Samos. And the other day, or then the, um, the day after that, they finally landed in Miletus. And this town, Miletus, is where the next chapter will take place. Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost, hastening to get there, full steam ahead. You'll remember that when Paul and Silas began the second missionary journey, it was also fraught with traveling oddities. They kept getting distracted. They wanted to go to this place, and the Holy Spirit said, no, that's not the right place to go. You need to go to Macedonia, right? So now here they're trying to just get back home. And they're stopping in all these places, and there's all these other things happening, and people are falling out of windows. They're just trying to get back to Jerusalem. It feels like they can't get back home. They're interrupted in every town that they visit. They're good interruptions. They're good interruptions, but they're interruptions. 
The final point I want to leave you with this, this morning is to be sensitive to those interruptions of your plans, to see them rather as divine appointments from the Lord. Rather than being discouraged that things aren't going the way that you planned, we are to be encouraged that the Lord is involved in our daily lives and is writing a better story on our behalf. Listen, there's not one thing that's going to happen in your life this week that will go perfectly according to your plan. Not one thing. There is also not one thing that will happen in your life that won't go perfectly according to God's plans. Every single one of his plans will be performed and implemented flawlessly, even if they seem to you to be interruptions. And I think what this has to come down to is our priorities. He wanted to get to Jerusalem. That was a good thing, right? But he did not make an idol of his own agenda. He stopped when he needed to stop. He preached when he needed to preach. He encouraged when he needed to encourage. When you sit down and you make this week's calendar, ask yourself, what are you investing in? What are you investing in? What are your priorities? Make a serious list of the top five things that you are giving your time and attention to. What are those five things? Do these investments push you towards Christ and towards his church? Or are these investments encouraging to you at all? Or do these investments distract you from the kingdom of God and cause you worldly stress? Where are your priorities? So you make that calendar this week, and then you write at the top of your calendar, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We have only so many dollars, so many hours of the day, so many brain cells to give our attention to. What are you investing in? I pray we can say with Paul that we are investing in the kingdom of righteousness above all else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful passage with all of its um, humor and all of its joy and comfort and encouragement. I pray that we would leave today encouraged, standing on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that we too have been risen from the dead. How lucky we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.